Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. This is the inspired word of Almighty God. After these things, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And those, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word. And we ask that it would dwell in us richly now, that Christ would speak to us through this word. All for the glory of your name, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew is uh, in the interesting position of being a tax collector. Uh, uh, an interesting position in Israel in those days because they had two thoughts. On the one hand, it was believed that if you were wealthy, it was because God was blessing you. On the other hand, tax collectors who were wealthy were wicked people. What, what do you do with that? I, I, I know you can come up with an answer. Of course, the, the Pharisees would say, if you are wealthy and haven't been sinning to get it, it's because God's blessing you. Uh, but it, there's, there's still a bit of a, a confused mindset that leads your culture, in, in fact, your church, as it were, to have this viewpoint about relationship with God. Upon reading our text, J.C. Ryle made this declaration, which is as good as the rest of this sermon, so I'll just give it to you right now, and then I'll preach the sermon. But Ryle comments that here, uh, we must never despair in anyone's salvation so long as he lives after reading a case like Levi's. We must never say that anyone of anyone that he is too wicked too hardened, too worldly to become a Christian. No sins are too many or too bad to be forgiven. No heart is too hard or too worldly to be changed. He who called Levi still lives and is the same that he was. With Christ, nothing is impossible. That's the message we're being taught in these brief verses about Matthew or Levi, who is called here into discipleship in preparation to be called as an apostle. 
As we look at these verses, I think Luke makes clear two things about the recipients of the gospel. Two things that that we can take to heart and should take to heart when we think about receiving the good news. I'm going to frame them positively with good news at the beginning of each point. The, The first thing I want us to see this morning is the good news that your bank account is irrelevant to your salvation. Your, your bank account is irrelevant to your salvation. Now, that, that goes two directions, doesn't it? If in their culture, God giving riches was God in a relationship with you, pleased with you, then they needed to know, on the one hand... That poverty isn't keeping you from a relationship with God, or put a different way, that poverty isn't a sign that you don't have a good relationship of blessing with God. I think in our culture, you almost have to spin it the other direction, don't you? If, if you read very many evangelical uh, authors, uh, articles, or listen to them talk in podcasts, there are a great many, some very popular and influential Christians in our country today who, who almost have the reverse attitude that um, if you are rich and wealthy, it's doubtful that you're a real Christian or really love Jesus and that it's in poverty or in people who give every cent of their bank account to others and become impoverished, that there is a a real relationship with God. And both of these extreme views are utterly wrong. As we look at the book of Luke, and I'm going to take a moment to do that before bringing us back to Matthew here or or, uh, Levi here in our text. But as we think about the relevancy of one's bank account for salvation, today many talk about Luke as if it's a book written against the rich. Luke has more to say about the poor than any other gospel author. That's true. But is what he is saying about the poor that rich people are wicked? Or that the poor alone are the ones who really get the gospel. That's how many speak, but that is not how Luke presents the poor and the rich in Luke and in the sequel, the book of Acts. I really appreciated Kevin DeYoung taking time to write an article about this a few years ago. And I like the way that he phrased this. He said... That rather than it being a book denouncing the rich, Luke is to show the rich could truly follow Jesus. That if there are big dangers for the rich, there are also big opportunities. I think that that's what Luke is getting at. Whatever your bank account amount, there are potential temptations and dangers that would keep you from really embracing the gospel. And on the other hand, 
Your bank account provides you with opportunity. Great opportunity to glorify the God who comes to us in the gospel. The good news is that your bank account is irrelevant to your salvation, but Luke does take us that next step and say it's not irrelevant to your Christian walk. I think it's important for us to know the difference between those two thoughts. Your bank account is completely irrelevant to whether or not you have that right standing with God in salvation. But if you have that right standing with God, your bank account becomes relevant again in how you will respond and live out the Christian life of gratitude. Luke has a lot of examples of this. I'm going to just target rich people here and not all of his statements about the poor. Let's think about some of the other rich people that Luke targets in his gospel and in the sequel of the book of Acts. For one thing, it's written by a doctor. Now, Luke may not have been a rich doctor. He was, after all, traveling with Paul. But any doctor in that age at least had a, a high standing in terms of uh, place in society. And so could quickly, unless he was just a nut of a doctor, have gained a position of, of status in a community had he settled down. Luke is in a class of people that are at least rich adjacent. And look at who he's writing the gospel to. If you recall, gospel of Luke and the, go- and the book of Acts are written to the most excellent Theophilus. Not that wicked, greedy man, Theophilus. And let me tell you a thing or two about your riches and Jesus. No. Luke says the most excellent. You're a a great guy who holds status. Probably, in fact, the man paying for the book of Luke and the book of Acts to be written. He was probably the patron behind Luke's work. And for that, we should be thankful. What a thing a rich man accomplished as the Holy Spirit took Luke and brought these two important books into your life 2,000 years later. But it's not just the writer and the recipient, the original recipient, Luke gets into others as well. For example, Christ in chapter 427, which we've looked at in the past few months, reminded the Jews that it was, there, were, there were many poor lepers in Israel in Elijah's day. But the one whom God paid special attention to was a rich Syrian. That, that alone should cause us to stop for a minute and assess whether riches keep you from the grace of God. Now, we could misunderstand that thought about the rich Syrian and think his riches brought him the favor of God. But then you just need to turn back and read the story. Because having been brought into a cleansed state before God, that rich man said, take all this money 
Let me buy the cleansing I've received. And what does Elijah say? I'm sorry, it's Elisha, isn't it? Elisha says, not touching it. The grace of God is free. It's not for sale. The book of Luke, chapter 8, 2 and 3, we find rich women. Rich women were the patrons of Christ's traveling seminary. Jesus and his apostles, they ate and they had places to stay because rich women used their money for the gospel. In chapter 18, there's the rich young ruler who unfortunately is held back from experiencing the joy of this relationship with Christ because of riches. But do you notice what happens right after that in Luke? The very next chapter, Zacchaeus, another rich, filthy tax collector, is called by Christ. And he takes advantage of big opportunities to use his ill-gotten wealth, not only to repay those he's hurt, but to help others as well. It is interesting, though, that Zacchaeus doesn't give up all his wealth. And he doesn't run out and sell his house. The fact that he had money is not a sin on his part. Some of his money he got through sin. But it seems that he continued to be a well-off man in the community who used that money as a big opportunity to care for others. If we look at the sequel to the book of Luke, the book of Acts, we find, again, rich women who are, in many instances, uh, the most receptive to the gospel. They're among the first to form the church. In fact, we're given two very specifically by name. Chapter 9 and chapter 16, we find Dorcas and we find Lydia. Neither woman, neither of these important rich merchants came to Christ and then just gave up everything they had. But they took advantage of big opportunity. Dorcas, with her great wealth, cared for the poor so that when she died, it was the poor who formed her chief mourners at her home, weeping and crying out, to the apostles. We could go on and on with examples, but all of this makes clear that on the one hand, we we cannot have kind of a proletariat view of Christianity, that, uh, that the rich are kept out because they're rich. And on the other hand, we see quite clearly that the rich don't purchase and don't receive Christ's gracious love because they are rich. Here we have Levi then. He receives the calling of Christ. You shouldn't miss, although sometimes I think we do, that this is a parallel text. It's parallel to what we read of some poor fishermen in the previous chapter. 
Actually, not the previous chapter. The beginning of this chapter several months ago. Where Christ says to those, those dirty, filthy, poor fishermen, follow me. And they left all and followed him. And here he shows up at a tax office, which may actually indicate that Matthew, Levi, was a higher level tax collector. Because this, this word tax office or tax booth that's mentioned in the text probably refers to uh, the office where, uh, where either on the docks the fishermen would have to pay taxes before selling their goods or else an office right next to the king's highway so that people traveling as merchants between Europe and parts of Asia and Africa would have to pay tolls to pass through. It's a bit more of a cushier tax collector job. Even among the richer class, it would have been the higher level of that rich class, sitting in a booth and having people come to you. In fact, some have suggested it's specifically a, a tax booth that's taxing the fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. It's possible that here is one who had long taken advantage of Peter and Andrew and James and John by taxing them too highly on their goods. And now Jesus is calling him to be one of them. And just like them, we read, so he left all. He got up from his desk and he followed Jesus. What a glorious thought. But I want to think about how he initially serves Jesus there because when we read he left all, there is that temptation to think that he, be, he, he gave all that he owned and became a homeless man with Jesus. But the text tells us that's not what, what is meant there, right? He left all, and then at his big old house, he threw a big old party and had a lot of guests. I think what we're being shown is that with Matthew, Levi, at least initially, he had a special calling. Remember later in the New Testament, Paul will refer to Peter as the apostle to the Jews. And he'll say, and I am the apostle called to the Gentiles. I think our text is telling us that at least initially, Levi, Matthew, was an apostle called specifically to be the apostle to the rich, the despised. He, he was called to the class that was distrusted. He was called to bring the rich to Christ. And he does it in a way that, that doesn't just call on them to throw money in an offering plate before we finish this song. He calls them to be guests to bring nothing but themselves to his own feast 
where they will come into contact with Christ. An apostle, an apostle for the rich and the despised. Second piece of good news here that Luke shows us through Levi. Not only does your bank account have nothing to do with your salvation, but secondly, there's good news that your health has everything to do with your salvation. Now, if you tune out now, you'll walk away and have the completely wrong message, won't you? Maybe it would be better to phrase it like this. Your sickness has everything to do with your salvation. That's what we find here. There's that dynamic here. All these rich men celebrating with Matthew and feasting with Christ. And Christ isn't afraid that somehow these these IRS agents are going to rub off on his disciples. He brings his disciples with him. He makes them sit down and feast with all these despised men. And it shouldn't be a surprise that once again the scribes and Pharisees come out of the woodwork. Have you thought about this scenario that they're close enough to complain to the disciples and Jesus overhears them, but they would not have been at the feast to eat themselves. Or would they? I was going back and forth on that this week. Because in hypocrisy, sometimes we go to the feast and eat and then complain that Jesus is feasting with sinners. But I don't think that's what we're seeing here, maybe. But I think what we're seeing here is they would never be caught dead sitting at that table eating with wicked tax collectors. In fact, if you were a tax collector in Israel, your witness wasn't accepted in a court of law. We can understand that, right? That's how we view tax collectors too. Can't trust anything they say. That's how they viewed that. In fact, if you were a tax collector, you could not be an elder in a synagogue. These are not men that the scribes and Pharisees are going to a feast as guests of. They would have been tainted, they would have thought. And yet, they walked into the room, apparently, to complain. And, and Christ, Christ really catches them on it, doesn't he? He says to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Christ isn't suggesting, Oh, you Pharisees and scribes, you can leave, you're fine. You're righteous. You're healthy. Let me deal with these people. We know he's not saying that. 
He rebukes them throughout the Gospels. John actually referred to them as a brood of vipers. And in the New Testament, we read such direct statements as, there is none righteous, no, not one. What Christ is challenging them with is this reality, and and we see it in the medical world as well, don't we? If you're convinced you're healthy, you don't go to the doctor. You might have cancer, but if you're convinced you're healthy, it's not going to get caught. That's why, at least, we used to joke about old Yankees who, who would be miserable at home and not go to the doctors. I don't feel like I've experienced that around here as much. But growing up, half of the old people in my church, you know, old people over 30 in my church who were from New England when I was a little kid, uh, they wouldn't go to the doctor if they were bleeding out on their sofa. They wouldn't go to the doctor if their arm was broken at their side. Oh, it'll get better from New England. If you don't believe you're sick, you don't go to the doctor. That doesn't mean you're not sick. Christ is challenging the Pharisees and the scribes with the fact that they think they are righteous in and of themselves. And as long as they think they're righteous in and of themselves, they will never seek a Savior no matter how much they claim they're waiting for a Messiah, they'll be looking for a Messiah who praises them and gives them riches or wealth, but not a Messiah who will die on the cross for their sins. But people who know they're not righteous. Oh, what a thing seeing a Savior is. When your entire community says you're wicked based on your job. And the synagogue will barely let you participate. And you're looked down on by everyone. And a Messiah who has been healing the poor and the sick and the afflicted and casting out demons agrees to sit at a table with you and break bread. That's the person knowing their sickness who will rejoice in calling out to the doctor. Have any of you noticed that it's far easier to witness to friends or acquaintances who know they're not righteous. I, I have people I care about that will say things like, well, we're not Christian, but we're spiritual. There's not a conversation to be had there, really. I, I'm not saying we shouldn't try. But, but 
you got to start the conversation by saying spiritual is still dead in trespasses and sins. I'm not saying those are the exact words you start the conversation with. But, but that's where you have to start, isn't it? It's much harder to convince the I'm a basically good person person that they need a savior. But when you know that person who knows that they're a cheat or a liar, they're unfaithful, they're uh, just broken because they're aware that they have made all the mistakes. You almost get to jump over a step, don't you? You don't have to convince them they need a savior. All you have to do is invite them into the presence of the Savior. They may or may not receive Him, but it's a much easier conversation. That's what Christ is getting at here. Your status in and of yourself has everything to do with whether or not you're going to receive salvation in Jesus' name. Because so long as you think you are righteous, you will not cry out, for the healing of the Savior. This is something that isn't just true in our initial conversion. It's something which throughout our Christian lives, we have to remind ourselves, what is my health level left to myself? We can think, we can think for example, of the church of the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. Christ says to them, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were hot or cold. So then, because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth, because you say, I am rich have become wealthy, have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's what he's saying to the Pharisees here. Matthew knew he was a sinner. In fact, if it's a right uh, guess that he was the tax officer who took advantage of all the fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. No doubt the minute he saw Jesus with those fishermen, he thought, he will never have me. And his friends came out in a great multitude that night because they knew no one else would have them over. And how many marveled that night to hear Christ say, I've come for them. I've come for them. Next Sunday we'll be, Lord willing, confessing Heidelberg Catechism number one together. When we confess that, what is it that we don't confess? We don't confess that our only comfort in life and in death 
is that I am rich and can give great amounts to the church and to charity. Or on the other hand, my comfort is that I am poor and therefore not corrupt like those wicked sinners. No, we will confess together something about what we own. Something about our bank accounts and everything else about us. We will confess, I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. See, your bank account has nothing to do with such assurance, but only your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we will not confess that our comfort is in our good health, our strength and our ability, or that our good comfort is in that we are basically good people. Better than my neighbor, at least. No, we will confess that our comfort is in that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. And as we grow older, we understand what a wonderful comfort that is all the more, don't we? As the hair falls out of our head. Some of us. There's nothing in my strength that can add a hair back to my head. I know that. Despite shampoo commercials that say it makes hair grow back. I know better. Do you know better about your righteousness when left to yourself? But your comfort is in a savior for sinners for the ungodly, for the sick and the weak, who knows every hair that falls from your head, every pound that you lose as your body decays, every pain and every sorrow. And in Him, not in your health, lies your comfort in life, yes, and in death. There is a great physician for our souls, Jesus Christ the righteous. And what a comfort can we find in hearing his oath that he came to save sinners. Well, some sinners. Remember what Paul says? I'm going to paraphrase it. I'm aware it's a paraphrase. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and some of them are the worst. Just the worst sinners. Christ says, I came to save such as these. Well, it is he alone who can give us salvation and eternal comfort. But I have just one more thought this morning, very brief that I want you to take home with you and think about. That when we have the comfort of this great physician for our souls, 
when we are in a relationship with him by grace through faith. That Matthew would here call on us to invite him near our friends and colleagues and acquaintances that they too may know his healing touch. Is that how we respond to the gospel? When we have been called and we follow Christ, does it look like a great invitation to sup with the Savior? To bring decay to the touch of the Creator? That's what Matthew calls you and I to. May God make it more and more so 